Oh, yeah. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artist and Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, March 18th. I'm back. I'm hosting the session today. Shout out to everybody who took care of the sessions for me over the last few weeks. Antonio and Vin and Mark. Uh, you guys were such, such, such a help. Um, if I'm missing anybody who, who helped take care of it, uh, my, my apologies, but I appreciate you guys so much for, for taking care of the uh, office hours. Um, I'll be back for the next couple of weeks, but you won't want to miss who's going to be hosting in uh, April. So on April, we've got Sadie St. Lawrence taking over. We've got Ken G taking over. Makiko is going to be taking over. Um, it'll be a fun time. So definitely be sure to, uh, to, to come and hang out. Um, I'm still waiting for the insurance to do some work on my basement uh, and get me back set up. So I'm still without any place to record, without any recording equipment or anything of the like. So hopefully you guys don't mind my uh, uh, low quality audio. Um, either way, man, super, super excited to be here. Shout out to the people that supported the show last week uh, through buying me a coffee. Uh, rest assured, I'm not using that stuff to buy coffee. It's being used to uh, help buy new equipment and pay for the editing costs of this podcast because that is getting a little bit out of hand. Uh, shout out to Gina and uh, Makiko and Naresh um, who helped out. As always, there's a link right there in the podcast um, that you can uh, podcast show notes that you can use to uh, to support the show um, or just uh, you know say hi, say thank you uh, for, for doing it. I'm, I'm happy with that too. By the way, if you guys have any things that you want me to talk about or anything that you want me to discuss, feel free to shoot me a message. Y'all know my email address, the artist of data science at gmail.com. Um, you know, I'm kind of, uh, kind of going through a uh, bit of a dry spell for content ideas. I think that's because uh, just, you know, a lot of stress going on, a lot of stuff happening. Um, hopefully you get a chance to tune into the podcast episode that was released today. Got the one and only Joe Reese uh, released that episode today. So I had a good time with, with Joe. So do check that out. This was a previously recorded episode. We actually, well, all episodes are previously recorded, obviously, but this one was streamed live on LinkedIn. So if you missed the live stream, this can be an opportunity to check out the, uh, the show itself. So Huge shout out to everybody that is joining us. Uh, Russell, Vin, Auntie, Gina, Makiko, Naresh, Jacob. I'm so excited to have all you guys here, man. Thank you all so much for being here. Uh, huge cheers to everyone. Um, drinking some fermented grape juice. Uh, so let's kick this session off with, with a question. Um, so I'm curious, right? Um, what, where do you go after data science, right? Like if you wanted to make a pivot out of data science, where do you go with your skill sets, right? Um, I'm asking this question just because I'm, I'm curious to see, uh, you know, what, what other options might be available to people, right? Some people might enter the field of data science and they think that this is exactly what it is that they want to be doing. They're like, oh yes, I'm going to be building models. I'm going to be doing all this amazing predictive analytics and predictive modeling and all this great stuff. And then they go to work and it's essentially just analytics and dashboarding and things like that, which maybe doesn't align well with what they thought it would be. Uh, and they might want to make a pivot out of data science. Where would they go? What are, what are some options that people have? Uh, let's go to Vin, then let's go to Makiko. And uh, Russell, I'm going to put you on mute for the time being because there's some uh, clacking coming from the keyboards there. Uh, Vin, go for it. I've been told that I'm highly qualified to be a Walmart greeter. So 
I've got a backup plan just in case I ever have to have to do something else. I think, you know, from a data scientist, you can go straight to CEO. And I think that's kind of the interesting pivot that you can make is that you can go from data science to pretty much any of those C-suite leadership roles and be successful because data is so important. So many business models are now being built on data in one way, shape, or form. They're being built on machine learning or rebuilt on machine learning. And so you can, I mean, if I was going to like apply for a real job someday, which required me to put a shirt on that's nicer than the one I have, I would, yeah, I'd probably try chasing a CEO gig down. That's interesting perspective, like straight to CEO, like how much experience would you, would like, would a data scientist need to go from, let's just say, uh, their beginning of their career, maybe their first role to like a CEO role? I think you need a lot of experience on the leadership side because you're leading an organization. So you have to have gone from, I led a team to, I led a, a business unit or, or group to, I've led an organization, you know, of cross-functional different mentalities, different objectives. I've handled investors. I've handled the board before, but it's kind of funny if you come out of a startup, especially as a data scientist, you've done a lot of that. It's insane how much, as soon as people realize you can do data, you can present, you can do the visualization side of it. All of a sudden, everybody wants you in on investor pitches and high level meetings at any time that they have to present any sort of data. They're like, hey, uh, let me send you an invite to this. And so you get some pretty broad experience after like four or five years working in a startup. You've pretty much gotten most of what you need from the investor side and from the, you know, the external facing side of it. And if you run an organization for three, four, five years, you can, you know, obviously you're not running, you know, you're not going to run Costco or something like that anytime soon, but you could go into a smaller, mid-sized business and be successful. Thank you very much, Ben. And on the point of, uh, of shirts, man, I'm trying to get to a place in life where all I wear is either black or white t-shirts and that's it with zero fucks given no matter where I go. Uh, shout out to Danny Ma in the house, Slim, Slim Danny, uh, spitting hot fire with that sequel query this morning, man. I absolutely love that. Good to have you here, Danny. Um, so, so the, the question that we're just kicking off with, um, it's, it's, you know, let's say you broke into data science and did the thing for a while and you're kind of figuring out that, okay, this might not be the right fit for me. I've put out all this time and energy and effort to break into data science. Now I'm coming to realization that it might not be for me. Where do we go after that? That's the, the topic we're talking about. Um, so I'll, I'll give you a, a couple of minutes to think, Danny. We'll go to Makiko, then we'll go to Danny, and then Russell's got some comments. So we'll go Makiko, Danny, Russell. By the way, those of you tuning in, either uh, on YouTube or on LinkedIn, if you guys got questions, go ahead and put them right there in the comment section. I'll be sure to add them to the queue. Makiko, go for it. Um, the three that come to top of my head are um, content creator because we know people here who are content creators. Um, but, you know, seriously, though, like, I think it's, it's funny because there is there's a couple different gaps, right? There is how data professionals understand data science, machine learning, right? And there there are gaps there, right? Then there's the next layer of air gap between like people who are in tech and versus people who are out of tech. 
So I think a lot of content creation, sometimes it's like recreating content for people like us, but I think there's like a huge gap in opportunity for creating content for people who are not like us. Um, so for example, like my parents, you know, they are operating in a world that is increasingly like data science, machine learning driven. They get these credit card offers and my dad swears that they picked him for it. I'm like, no dad, it's you fit the persona of a schmuck. It's not that they pointed at you as a schmuck, right? Um, you know, but like the thing is, uh, there is something to be said for the fact that like there are increasing sort of structural, um, uh, how should I put inequalities, right? It's not just inequality in terms of wealth and income, but it's also an understanding of like kind of the the systems for that run people's lives, right? So I think there is a huge opportunity there, um, especially for people who are sort of like multi. Uh, faceted and, and creative folks, which I think everyone on this call is, frankly. Um, I think the other second area of opportunity is product management. That's a really, really, really big thing. Um, you know, and go and that kind of aligns with like Vin's, you could become a CEO. Definitely, if you want to create like an ML or AI driven startup or an ML AI like native product, um, and you're good with talking with people, that's really valuable because a lot of traditional engineers, they have, they, they operate in like one sort of world or one sort of epoch, shall we say, which was like pre-data and pre-ML. Um, and that sometimes influences product decisions in a way that is bad. <laughs> um, you know, and the third part is, is part is pivoting to more of an engineering role, which is what I did. Um, I pivoted to ML engineering and then I pivoted to ML ops. Now, it seems like I'm kind of stuck between like ML ops and like data engineering and infrastructure. Um, but it's super valuable because at the end of the day, my internal users are data scientists. So it's helpful to have that mindset of who are my people that I'm walking in their shoes to create better experiences. Nikiko, thank you so much. Uh, Danny, let's let's hear from you. By the way, man, good to see you again. As always, it's been quite some time. Uh, so it's a pleasure to, to chat with you, man. Hey, everyone. Nice to see. Nice to see you all. Um, I just woke up, so I'm sorry if I if my thoughts don't sound too coherent. Um, from so the question originally was like, you enter data science, uh, you kind of come in, you realize that it's not a good fit for what your career aspirations are. Um, or where, where you want to go in the future, for example, right? So I've worked with quite a few people who've had the same experience where they, they came in, maybe they're doing data science in terms of like the machine learning, predictive models, putting things into production, coding a lot, and they, didn't, they just didn't like it. They might've been very good at it and good at procedurally doing the thing um, and solving problems. They enjoyed solving problems, but doing all the like fitting models and doing all of that sort of stuff just wasn't really going their way. So there are a few different options, right? So one of them is we can all agree that having these sorts of skills are really valuable, regardless of like whether you whether you physically code the thing and apply them, or if you're leading projects to implement some sort of machine learning to make a feature smarter or make your product more data-driven or anything like that. Um, I feel that having done a stint in that technical technical area of data science is always going to be well let's call it career capital 
for whatever you want to do in the future. So if you did want to go down an engineering route, at least, or if you were doing engineering for data scientists, you would know exactly what the data scientists would need. And likewise, for the business side, if you wanted to go and lead projects and manage teams of data scientists, you would also know what the data scientists need. So it's kind of like, I felt in earlier in my career that I wanted to be as technical as possible. And at different points, I got to the level of frustration where I was just like, why are we even building a model for this? Do we even need a machine learning model? Um, why don't we just apply some simple heuristics and be done with it and move on to the next problem? So at different points in time, whether, whether you think you'll not get bored of training models and doing data science and visualizing data and explaining things to stakeholders and everything, I think everyone gets to the point where either you, you've had enough of it or you really question whether you want to continue doing this for the next five to 10 years. So I think it's quite natural to be thinking about it. And it's a really great question. Awesome. Thank you so much, Danny. I appreciate that perspective. Uh, a lot of good thoughts coming in, a lot of good, uh, a lot of good ideas. I'm happy to, happy to hear this. Let's go to Russell. So just for everybody that just joined in, uh, just kind of kicked off the question. And I'll explain why I kicked off this question after we're done with this round of discussions. But uh, the question is, let's say you, you did your thing in data science for a while, and now you kind of, you know, may, maybe you realize that this isn't for me, or maybe you realize that this isn't all I want to do. Um, what comes after data science is, is kind of the gist of the question. What comes after data science? Uh, what do you do if you, wanted to, if you wanted to pivot out of data science? So um, let's go ahead and uh, hear from Russell because he had some good thoughts on there. I'd like to go to, uh, to Joe Lee after this. Shout out to Ken G in the building, good to see you, Ken. Um, and if you guys have questions on LinkedIn or on YouTube, by all means, feel free to drop your questions in the comment. I will get to them. Let's go to uh, Russell. Thanks, Alfred. Yeah, so I, uh, there's been great comments so far, and uh, Mikiko kind of touched on uh, uh, what I wanted to say, which was project man uh, sorry, product management. Uh, so depending on what the consumption product is, i.e. what the business or any of the audience is seeing, managing that and being a, a pivotable, sorry, a pivotal um, translator and catalyst for the data and how the consumers consume the product and the data science team or teams that create it. So if the audience needs a change or they're not understanding something so well, it's often very difficult for them to translate that into a message that the data science team can action efficiently. So having some kind of catalyst and translator there in the middle is really invaluable. And that's kind of the space that I've been in for a while. So, you know, I'm not a, not a data scientist. I probably was more a data analyst than a data scientist anyway in the first case. So, I, you know, I, I, I use data science in my day-to-day -day job, but I definitely wouldn't classify myself as a data scientist. But if I had to pin myself down to a single role, it would be that data catalyst, data translator. And it really is key. Uh, and it's very rewarding often. So being able to translate that frustration or thought for innovation that's coming from the consumers to something that the team can digest and implement quickly and efficiently is uh, is very good other than that um a wildcard solution may be um sorting out zoom backgrounds for mikiko she's always on point and if there's ever an opening there mikiko put me down for it please 
Absolutely. I have no idea what service I'm offering, but as long as it's legal and I can monetize it, I'm there. I'm there for you. I'm here to serve. AI-driven uh, backgrounds for, for Zoom, right? Like you log in and like the Zoom, like the, the camera is going to read your facial features. It will understand your emotion and then appropriately uh, give you the Zoom background. Uh, so Joe, do you want to tackle this question before I go to uh, Costa? Any, any thoughts here? Because I know you kind of made that, that pivot yourself as well. Then we'll go to, from Joe, we'll go to Costa. Was it, the, was the question basically like what's next after data science? Uh, yeah, pretty much. It's kind of headed, headed in next to now, yeah. Yeah, nothing's next after data science, unfortunately. <laughs> your, your life's over and yeah, you, sorry. I'm just kidding. Um, no, I mean, I, I think it's just it's just a progression, really. Like, I, I, I view it as kind of like, you know, um, like anything else in life. Like it's it, it might be a detour. It might be a stopover. But at some point, you know, you evolve and you, you kind of move on to a you know, other things, but I would say it's also very additive. And so unless you absolutely hate data science and never want anything to do with it, you're going to probably pick up some skills and knowledge that you can use for whatever's next. So, you know, tech in general is an interesting field, right? I see people either they're in it for a long time. You know, I've been in data for a long time. And to me, it's it's never felt like work. I just kind of like it. I nerd out on the stuff in my spare time. And it's, it's, it's always been, but other people like, I know, I know a lot of people, like one, one guy I know, he, he's kind of, uh, he peaced out. He's, he's making furniture now for the most part. Like he just doesn't want anything to do with this industry. Um, so I, I think it's just one of those things where either like you kind of transition to some sort of like, you know, um, adjacent role where you can apply your skills to a domain, you know, you go do something else, maybe raise sheep or something. I don't know. So it's just, uh, it totally depends. So, but you know, I don't, I don't know that it, you can't really say like, oh, there's, there's, there's nothing left. Like this is kind of the end all be all, like this is the only thing you can do. I think it's, you know, the cool thing is you got some really cool skills. So when as Makiko says pivot, you know, in the chat here, it's, I think it's what, I mean, if you, if you look at, I, I think the more interesting people I know and some of the more successful people I know, it's not like they set out to do anything in particular, right? They just apply to one skill set and have it to move into something else. And then, and then throughout your career, what you're going to find is like, when you look back, it all makes perfect sense as you're going forward it makes zero sense and it's probably very scary in that way but that's fun so yeah i guess we got the most transferable set of skills it's not like being an accountant right where all you do is spreadsheets and stuff <laughs> we, had, we had a good set of transferable skills uh, let's go to coast of then ken g then by the way if anybody has questions either here or on youtube or on linkedin please let me know right there in the comments and i will add you to the queue go for coast of so, so this kind of throws me back to something we were talking about last week, right? Um, where I think someone asked about uh, how do I know data science is right for me or something like that, right? Um, to me, it comes down to why are you doing data science, right? Data science, machine learning, these are tools, right? I'm, I'm, I'm an engineer. I'm a robotics engineer. I've learned mechanics. I've learned electronics. I've learned software. And now I've learned a bit of machine learning, and I'm using that to do stuff, right? It's a means to an end. For me personally, it's about the mission, right? For me, the mission is robots. I need to see robots in the real world. Part of that is solving the vision problem or the perception problem, right? Um, if I get bored of this particular set of tools that I'm working in, I change the part of the problem I'm working on, right? It might take a bit of a shift and maybe a bit of a jump backwards, but I can go back to my electronic skills, go back to the mission itself. Now, the question becomes, 
am I bored of the mission? If I'm bored of the mission, that's a much bigger question, right? And then I go, what's my new why? What's my new reason for doing stuff? I, I think I've, I've seen a lot of data scientists um, and, and developers in general that are in the space because the space is big, right? There's been this big push for data science. There's this huge gap. We need to get loads of data scientists in. Um, and I've seen a lot of people that will just turn around to me and say, oh, I'm in data science because I love working with data, which is a fantastic answer, right? Because you're doing what you love, but then there's a higher step of guidance if you have a mission that drives why you're working with a particular tool set. At the end of the day, let's not forget that these are tools, right? Like for all you know, CNNs and transformers might be completely obliterated by the next thing around the corner. We just don't know what's going to come along, right? So uh, I try not to get too aligned to, oh, this is my toolkit and I love my toolkit and I am, you know, man with a hammer kind of thing. Um, so I think ultimately that's the question we've got to ask ourselves is what's our mission and why are we working in a particular problem set, right? It's a part of that mission. Um, and, and I guess sometimes we get disenchanted by by it as well. Uh, I, I'm, I'm really curious. And, and I heard this as a rumor, so I'm not sure if this is true or how true this is, but Joe Redmond, the guy that came up with the OLO, right? eventually he apparently kind of said, yeah, I don't want anything to do with object detection because of the way of how it was being used, right? So all of these networks, all these advanced technologies that can be misused, what happens if we see that? Like, what if I see our oh, robots are in the real world and they're all being used for destruction? I don't want anything to do with it, right? That's when you got to do a bit of self-assessment and really figure out what you want in life, right? That's a much bigger question than just, oh, I've got these transferable skills. It, it might literally mean that I go do something completely different. I might look into my music or something else, right? Um, so it, it does come down to why are you doing what you're doing, right? If you don't know why you're doing data science and you're just doing it for the sake of it, you're more likely to get bored and find something else, uh, if you know what I mean. Kosa, thank you so much. Uh, let's go to Ken G. By the way, if anybody has questions, again, let me know in the chat here on LinkedIn, on YouTube. I'm monitoring it all. Uh, Ken, good to see you again, man. Yeah, good to see you too. Um, first, I love all the backgrounds that are going on right now. I prefer my non-virtual organized chaos in the background. Um, but, you know, to your point, what's after data science? This one's really interesting. I, I think for me, before data science, I was always interested in entrepreneurship. And I got interested in the data field because I saw there were a lot of parallels between data science and entrepreneurship, right? You're thinking about a, a situation quantitatively, you're building things, you're collecting information, and you're producing either a product or recommendation or whatever that might be. And I think the natural exit to data science is also something entrepreneurial. This might have been said already. And I, I think Joe touched on it a little bit, but like the skill set that you cultivate, the the mindset, the way data scientists think, I think it really lends itself very well towards uh, building a product, creating a platform, whatever that might be. First, you have the technical skills and you have the ability to scope and understand these problems, which to me is like two sides of the equation. The other thing you need is like, knowing the right people, which I think everyone here, you know, we're all pretty good at connecting with each other and, and forming a network. And then the last one is financial resources, which 
frankly, the data science profession also affords. So it's pretty, you know, it's pretty interesting to me that that to me, what are, you, you have most of the tools that you would need. I can't think of too many other professions that set you up as well as data science does to pursue something completely on your own entrepreneurially. It could be a data related product, but running an organization, starting something, you know, building a product, building an MVP and, and accelerating it to me again, is this very natural next step. I absolutely love that, Ken. Thank you so much. <laughs> if you guys are listening to this on the podcast, pause it, go back, and uh, make sure you watch the YouTube video because these backgrounds are way too much. These are amazing. Uh, yeah, so Makiko was talking about uh, content creation as a next step in data science, right? Um, so for me, you know, like uh, I haven't been a quote-unquote practicing data scientist in like the traditional sense. Uh, for the last like six, seven months, right? So I moved to Comet and my role at Comet is essentially what's called developer advocacy, right? And this is a really unique, I think, space that's well-suited to me personally where my specific knowledge fits in quite well there because it's a combination of uh, not only the data science aspect of the stuff, but it's product, it's marketing and it's engineering, all kind of combined and rolled into one type of role. And my main, like, job at you know at comet is to create content about our product so that it eases people's uh experience using the product um so there's that aspect of it and then just kind of like the raising awareness about the product and, and you know the, the marketing aspects of it um and i'm really been i've really been fascinated by this role this developer relations developer advocacy type of path um, it's been like an obsession of mine, and this is going to be something you guys are going to hear me talk more and more about uh, quite a lot. Um, just also just quick, quick announcement. Uh, like I'm, I'm leaving Comet as of next week. Uh, my last week at Comet is um, on March 25th, and I'll be going over to Pachyderm, uh, where I'll be stretching my skills in a completely kind of different direction. It's still ML ops oriented, still ML ops related, but it's more on the data engineering kind of aspect but my role there is going to be developer relations um and this type of role i think is such a high leverage role because to be successful in this role not only have you had to been a good practitioner and you have to demonstrate that you've been a good practitioner uh but you have to learn to build you've got to learn to sell right this is one of those unique opportunities where uh, you get a chance to do a little bit of both and the fact that this type of role crosses product engineering marketing um and, and it's high on content creation. It's, it's fun. It's interesting. So I definitely urge you guys to look into the developer relations or developer advocacy type of path that sounds interesting to you. Um, I've been knee deep in, in uh, or neck deep rather in, in study and research around this field. So you'll hear, hear me do a lot more uh, content around that in the uh, coming weeks. But, but yeah, like been a great ride at Comet. Absolutely enjoyed working there. Had a great team. Um, it was a super tough decision, but ultimately there's some intangible facts that uh, that led me to go with Pachyderm. One of which was that uh, it's been my dream to work at a Silicon Valley startup uh, that's backed by Silicon Valley investors. You know, I grew up in Northern California, so that has always been a dream of mine. And so that's happening with uh, with Pachyderm, and that just that to me just means a lot. Um, and yeah, I feel like I'll be able to, to have a huge impact there. But why did I make that change from individual contributor, individual practitioner into this type of role? Um, 
because I feel like the impact I have as just one individual in one company doing stuff for that particular company is not as impactful as it could be in a role where I'm kind of guiding the industry in a sense and, and being a thought leader for the industry and helping develop and set best practices for machine learning and ML ops uh, for the industry at large. So I feel like this type of role allows me to, to have more, more impact on, on the future of, of machine learning. Um, but yeah, develop relations, develop advocacy. That is the path I am going on. Um, looking to see if there's any questions coming in. There's one question coming in on LinkedIn. Uh, somebody's asking why it's hard to get your first internship in data science. Uh, is that a question that anybody wants to tackle? Uh, other than it just is. Does not look like that let, is. Let me add something new to what Harpreet just said. Yeah, yeah, please, please. It just and then is. we'll go to Camden Coasted. <laughs> yeah. It just is. Uh, let's go to Ken and then Coast Up. And then, by the way, like I said, if you guys got questions, please leave them right there in the chat in the comment section. We'll be sure to get to them. Uh, Ken, go for it, then Coast Up. So I have sort of a weird two-part answer. So the first, I think, is it, it, it's hard to do anything for the first time, right? You need proof of work. You need a, a, some... Why is someone going to hire you, right? They want to see experience. They want to know that if they're going to bring you in and pay you money, they want to be sure that you're going to at least do a suitable job. I think the barrier for internships is significantly lower than, the, you know, than a full-time job. You're looking at maybe three months versus potentially five, 10, 20 years. Um, I would push back on that though. And I'd say that some, you know, for some people, it, it isn't that hard to land their first internship. And I think it's really important to study those people to figure out what they're doing differently than what you are to be able to land those things. So I think the first thing that a lot of people who are really doing well at, at landing these internships are, are doing is they're finding experience in other places. Maybe they haven't had a previous internship before, but maybe they've done some volunteer work. Maybe they've done research. Maybe they've done these other things that someone can look at and say, okay, well, this is a corollary for internship experience. This is real experience that other people who are also applying to this internship don't have. You know, Why wouldn't we look at that? Another thing is a portfolio, right? If you have a really strong portfolio compared to everyone else in who's applying for that internship, you're probably not going to have a hard time getting internships because you've already differentiated yourself. And, you know, another thing, if, if you're like, wow, well, you know, it's my freshman year in college, I like barely know that much programming. I want to use this as a learning experience. Communication and reaching out is another way you can differentiate yourself. If you're using different channels to get in touch with people, if you're connecting with people on a different level, maybe the content of your conversations or what you bring to the table on that end, you're also probably not going to have too much trouble getting an internship because you're differentiated in that sense. So I think about rather rather than thinking about what you're doing the same as other people, think about what you're doing differently from them. What makes you stand out? Because at the internship level a lot of the candidates are very similar, right? Like most of them haven't had internships. Most of them have, have had a um, XYZ uh, classes and they don't have that much to show for it. Just a small differentiator can make it from very difficult to relatively easy. Ken, thank you so much. Uh, shout out to Ben Taylor in the building. Good to see you, Ben. It's been a while. 
at least inside the, you know, the charity here. Uh, let's go to Costa. The, the question that we're, that, we're, uh, that we're at right now is, why is it so hard to get an internship in data science? So after Costa, we will go to uh, Danny. And um, if you guys got questions, again, uh, I think Gina has a question. So after Costa and, and, and Danny, um, we'll go to Gina's question. Cool. So I, I see kind of four parts to this, right? Uh, four separate factors that uh, are creating pain points and getting internships and first jobs, right? Um, I think I'm more focused on first jobs than, than internships necessarily. Um, so the, fir the first uh, and foremost thing is that data science is not as linear a, a learning path in the sense that uh, a lot of the time it relies on both technical expertise in multiple fields as well as some domain knowledge, right? So there's a bit of a, a weird thing where if you've been in a domain, let's say I've worked in med tech for like four years, right? I develop enough knowledge in terms of the problems there are to solve in that space, right? Some of that domain knowledge could make me an expert in med tech and data science and the, and the confluence of those two areas, right? So over time you build that up. So it's a lot harder to do that early career. That's one. Can't solve it. That's okay. Let's not worry about that. Right? The main thing you got to worry about is what are the things you can solve and can fix. The second thing is proven track record, right? It's 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 hard to prove your track record, but arguably I agree with Ken. It's easier to prove your track record in something like data science than it is to prove your track record with mechanical engineering or electronics or robotics or uh, something else like that, right? I can't build a whole robot on my own. I might be able to build a little toy, you know. A, a tiny robot or it's a big investment cost to go get, you know, 3D printers and stuff like that to show my mechanical design skills right to fruition, right? I might be able to get CAD software or something like that. But with with data science, there's data available for free. There's tools available for free. Uh, you know, you pretty much get 300 bucks on GCP and it's not terribly inaccessible, right, in comparison. So, yeah, I don't think there's huge barriers to entry in that sense, right? So go ahead and build that portfolio. I think that's that's the big thing if that's what you're missing. But then there's the other two sides to it, right? Um, I think a lot of companies are still in a space where they're uncertain on the value provision that data science um, poses for them, right? So a lot of companies are keen to hire their first hire as like a senior ML engineer or a senior data scientist or, or someone like that who can uh, come in and, and they don't know what value is actually gonna be added. So a lot of companies, while they might have data science roles up, they're kind of still only looking for those senior people who can kind of prove out the value of the role and the value of that um, kind of field for that company, right? So I don't think there's as many lower, um, like entry level data science roles as there are the senior uh, space because of the maturity of companies' data readiness. And the third thing is kind of along that lines is a lot of companies that are data ready don't necessarily have the built-up maturity in their data team, right? Now, in order to have an intern or a entry-level engineer, they need guidance, like not from necessarily even a data science perspective, but a how do you operate professionally? How do you deal with clients? How do you deal with uh, internal, you know, bloody office politics and stuff like that, right? Like there's so much that you learn on operating, particularly in large corporate environments, right? Um, but even so in, in startups, right, how do you know boundaries in terms of this is how work should be versus I'm getting, you know, exploited over here, <laughs> but it does happen. So <laughs> essentially uh, it comes down to is a company ready to take on an intern or a grad and actually give them 
adequate experience, right? So that's the other side of it. So that maturity of the companies is there. And given that this whole data science as a field is still at this stage, it's quite an early, early career stage, right? That that those career maps for this is what a graduate should have and skills should have isn't established industry-wide, right? This is what an entry level should have. That's not, a, that's not established. Because that's not established, university degrees aren't 100% sure what to aim for in terms of saying, this is what we're going to teach a data scientist and expect them to know graduating from it, right? So the degrees that we have now, there's very few bachelors of data science. There's always masters of data science. I'm starting to see now, I think Sydney University and a couple of others are starting to offer bachelor's of data science here in Australia, but um, we're only starting to see that coming through the woodworks, essentially. So I think over the next four or five years, what we'll find is it'll settle to like a mean where we, we go, okay, this is kind of what we all expect industry-wide of entry-level data scientists. So your bachelor's degree courses can focus on that, give them a specialty on there, and then you'll start to see that pipeline smooth out, right? Um, I think it's uh, early industry stage is part of the... Uh, essentially part of the problem. And in that, if you can make yourself stand out with a great portfolio uh, initiative is what's, what gets your head on that front. So, yeah. Costa, thank you so much. Let's go to, uh, let's go to Danny Ma, then Eric Sims. Um, and then some great questions coming in uh, on, on LinkedIn. Um, one of my former colleagues, uh, Kyle Ahn has a question, was that he helped me, uh, helped me do some good work at Price. So I can't wait to get to Kyle's question. Um, but we'll go to uh, we'll go to Danny, then we'll go to Eric, then we got Gina's question. Then after Gina's question, we will go to uh, Marcelo, and then Kyle's question, both coming in from LinkedIn. Awesome, thanks, Harpreet. I'll try and keep it short because we have many things to talk about. Um, I think if you're having trouble trying to find a data science internship or any sort of internship role, nine times out of ten, you're probably looking in the wrong places. Um, whether it's the, let's say the, the party on the other side wants someone who can instantly start doing work and producing value, or if they're looking for people to actually mentor and coach and grow and kind of put a bit more trust in their skills as well. So it really depends on this like supply and demand dynamic on what people are looking for. So I think that's one thing. The second thing is probably everyone has trouble trying to differentiate themselves um, and differentiate yourself doesn't necessarily mean like have the best portfolio or Kaggle, Kaggle results or anything like that. It's, you have to stand out in a way which is like at a very high level, but in a general sense, like different to other people who are going for the role. And it has to be in a way which puts some sort of faith in the person who wants to bring you on as an intern, that you'll actually be able to help or that you fit that culture. So that's another thing to think about. Um, but definitely there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of my focus or my value proposition that I give to all my um, students and my following is essentially how do we bridge this gap between what is needed in industry and I wanna break in or if I wanna do a career switch or anything like that. So I've been thinking about this a lot, but I don't think, um, I think we'll, we'll cover it another time because there's just, there's a ton of stuff that we can talk about. And you do this um, uh, virtual internship as well. Uh, so go ahead, plug that, man. Tell people about that. Where can they find more? For sure. So thanks for the opportunity, Harpreet. 
So I run Data with Danny. Um, it's essentially, you can check it out at datawithdanny.com. Uh, my plan was essentially to provide this sort of internship experience through a series of courses, essentially. And my plan was to do multiple courses covering some of the skills that we, we learn, technical skills that we learn as data scientists on the job. So the first one that I taught was SQL. So my first course is Serious SQL. Um, you essentially learn SQL through doing many, many case studies um, as realistic as possible. Some of the things that we all do in, on our jobs. And the plan was to have another future course in Python and other stuff, machine learning, statistics, et cetera. Um, but I've just kind of focused on SQL as a major pain point for a lot of people coming in, um, especially when you need, you're forced to use a database. You've never used a database before. Um, a lot of the data that we pull when we're data scientists is coming from a SQL database. So it's really, really critical to have those sort of fundamental skills. Um, and I, yeah. outside of that, I, I do a lot of teaching for O'Reilly as well. So I have some SQL stuff on O'Reilly. I have an upcoming um, interview video masterclass sort of thing that I'm trying to produce with them. So that's my current project right now. Yeah, and you do uh, like the, the serious SQL is like serious stuff, right? Cause you got people in Docker containers and working on the command line doing SQL stuff like that. So that's uh, very much like closer to, to the real world than uh, just kind of, you know, just doing it on like, I guess, uh, course or whatever um but yeah awesome stuff now you guys check out danny's stuff uh eric sims you had your hand up yeah i just had a couple of quick little things i was yeah. thinking about how we started this off talking about you know what kind of comes after data science with the internship thing it's like what comes before data science a lot of people talk about trans transitioning because they've got work experience or whatever but you know i have to think about also like what kind of internship are is it someone looking for and what kind of internship are they ready for? Um, do you really need to get a data science, data science internship, like in, in quotes, or, you know, can you get a marketing internship and bring a data mindset? Um, because I would say, you know, I haven't ever had a data science internship, but I would say that I worked with data, uh, long before I worked in data, right? Because, you know, there are, Lots of opportunities for that. The other piece, kind of, I think, went along with what Danny was saying, was talk to people. Like, if someone sends me a hey message and a resume, um, I'm not, I'm not going to help them. But if somebody sends me a project that they worked on or that they're working on, and they ask me for feedback, I am all ears. You know, they didn't even ask me for an internship in our first interaction. Sweet. Um, but then, if they want to talk to me about it later, that's great. That's that's way better because then I've at least seen some of their work and talked to them and you know, like cultivate a little bit of a relationship. With people. Thanks so much. Uh, Makiko, go for it. Yeah, I guess the other two or three points I want to add in there are, um, first off, uh, an internship is not, it's not a prerequisite for success, like later on in one's career. Like, I'm sitting on some of these panels for MailChimp, and these interns are, like, scary. Like, oh, my God, the kids are, are all right. They are doing great from a skills and experience perspective. Um, Sometimes when decisions are made, it's not even about the skill set of the individual. It's sometimes the consideration is literally like, are they closer to graduation and will they accept a full-time offer from us? Because I think um, companies who have a very like healthy expectation relationship with their internship programs, like they understand that it's a time commitment. Like, you know, we're not bringing on an intern with this understanding <laughs> that the intern is going to provide immediate value. Sometimes they do. Like they pick a really cool project 
that's been kind of scoped um, for them and they run with it and it becomes a cool new feature. And that is awesome. Or, you know, the MVP, like a new tool that that is fantastic. Um, but it is a time commitment of the senior engineers or the partnering engineers. Um, it is an investment. Part of it is to do the talent pipeline, but also because it just makes us kind of like better in general as like an engineering community or a data science community, right? So when we look at candidates, sometimes we are literally going like, okay, there are this batch of amazing people. Um, we get to only like, we have a batch of like, let's say 10 candidates. We only get to pick two. Like we don't get to say, but could we please, please do offers for all of them and then get like five engineers. And it's like, no, no, the budget is for two. Right. And a lot of times it's literally like, this person is closest to graduation. Um, so we'll be able to like pull them in. Um, and, and those co conversations sometimes come up, but like sometimes it's not really like about the intern skill. But the other part too, right, is if these people come back later on, like we'll probably want to hire them. And like for me personally, I would not have been able to get into like the MailChimp internship program. Like I look at the, you know, the people that we're, we're sort of considering and it's like, wow, like I'm really not, I, I was not there like at that age, right? Um, but I was able to get in as a full-time engineer and a huge part of that is because of some years of work under my belt. Um, you know, some experience with key stakeholder management, um, sort of broad exposure to other areas. Um, and a lot of it is because at the engineering level or, or the data scientist level or like the senior data scientist, whatever, a lot of times you're expected to kind of scope your own projects. So the requirements for being hired as a full-time or whatever, it's just, it's going to be different from an internship. So I would say like, if someone can't get like an internship, like out of the program, it's, it's not like the death kill for like the rest of your career. Um, that's just not really the way it works. Right. But also too, sometimes there are factors out of one's control. And the reality is that data science is a super, super popular field. And it's also, unfortunately the dump bucket for like everything. So whether someone is interested in, act, in in data engineering or ML ops or like DevOps or even product management, like a lot of people just go straight there. And sometimes like by actually choosing like something different, like Eric mentioned, if you, if you go into like more of a marketing or something else, it's less competitive, but you still get the same experience and you can still brand it. And honestly, that's pro I think that's a strategy that, if I recall, some of us on this call have used of getting into less competitive programs and then transferring to more competitive ones, because sometimes it's just easier to do the transfer over as opposed to doing like the direct line. So for me, that was the case, um, you know, so it's not the end of the world. If you don't get an internship, it's totally cool. Um, Akiko, thank you so much. Uh, so shout out to Mark. Mark is in the building. Mark, uh, do, you, do you want to talk about internships real quick? Yeah, so what was the original question? So I have a lot of thoughts on internships that's very top yeah. of mind right now, but I <laughs> might want to make sure uh, I answer the yeah. original question. <laughs> the original question was, why is getting a data science internship so hard? That, that, was, the, that was the question. <laughs> Definitely. So uh, I'm actually actively interviewing interns right now at Humu. Um, we have a role up. And so now recruiting is just pulling me in randomly. I'll, I'll come to work and be like, hey, you have an interview today. I'm like, great. Um, I enjoy interviews and similar to what Mihiko said, yeah, these interns are scary. Like they're so good. 
I, I interviewed uh, individuals <clears throat> last week and one of them in the notes, I, I literally wrote, I feel like I can learn so much from this individual. Please hire them, right? So like <laughs> I'm learning so much from, from an intern joining is this depth of skill. But I think something that I think a lot of, uh, at least early career, like I didn't realize at first was, cool, you have the technical skills, you can do the analysis, you may build a model or write some great code. But there's a huge difference between someone directing you to do that and you execute on that and you being able to identify opportunities and scope it out yourself and just handle yourself um, through that process. And so for me, that's been a huge difference between being early career, getting my first kind of entry-level data science job and now being a senior data scientist is actually my technical skills, they have improved, but what's improved way more and what kind of got me the promotion was my ability to self-manage myself. And so interns are coming in not only with their, their kind of technical skills was there, but if you can show your ability just to take a project on your own and, you know, instead of coming to me and saying like, what do I do next? To actually be like, here are my thoughts and I engage with that. I can provide way better mentorship to you. And that'll be a much better kind of internship relationship uh, for that. Um, and so some of the top things that I'm really seeing for applying for internships, um, at least through the pipeline when I review projects and whatnot, is um, your ability to clearly, you know, you, you can do the data, that's great, but your ability to clearly communicate to others, that goes a long way. So I'm currently, uh, so for context, my job, Humu, we're currently hiring interns right now, but we're not actively posting it because if you put a post out, 100, 200, 300 entry level people are just going to scramble to it and it's going to make it really hard. So we've just been actively like going through LinkedIn referrals and stuff like that. Things that say, like, when people reach out to me, I get kind of two reaches outs. Um, one of them is like, hey, give me a job. I ignore those. That, <laughs> there's nothing I can do to help you with that. Then there's some people who are like, hey, I'm interested in Humu. Here's a blog article I wrote. And I read the blog article, and I'm just like, oh, my God, this is exactly what we're looking for. I go straight to my manager and give, like, a quick pitch on Slack, like, why we need to hire this person. And then I refer them over, and they get an interview. And so – Thinking of other ways to best like set yourself up is actually not the technical skills, in my opinion. I think it's being able to communicate your value, even if you're at an intern level. That felt very rambly. Those are my thoughts right now. Uh, absolutely love it, Mark. Thank you so much. Uh, let's go to uh, Danny Ma. But before we go to Danny Ma, I just want to give you guys a hint of questions to come. Gina has a question about knowledge graphs um, and how knowledge graphs uh, are, are used in business. Uh, Marcelo has a question about auto ML and what that means for the future of data engineering, machine learning engineering. Uh, my former colleague at Price, Kyle Ahn, has a question about uh, software engineering, uh, sorry, machine learning engineering converging to software engineering and what the future that looks like. Uh, Pavan has a question about 10x growth for AI and ML and something about the quantum, future of quantum computing. Uh, and then uh, uh, Anaksha has a question about uh, what makes a good portfolio. So a lot of good questions coming up in the pipeline. Make sure you guys stick around. Um, let's go to Danny. Then after Danny, we're going to go to uh, Gina's question. Okay, so I wanted to add just one thing on Mark's um, point about releasing the job ad for Humu for a data science internship. So I had a really good buddy um, working at Amazon who had a similar sort of problem. So what they did was they put up two roles side by side. One, it's exactly the same position. One was a data science, entry-level data science position. 
and another one was an entry-level BI engineer position. The sort of skills that they need were exactly the same, only the title was changed. And he got absolutely slammed for the entry-level data science position, but there were probably 10% of the volume was going for the BI engineer role. And I think what a lot of entry-level uh, people coming into our industry, what they don't realize is maybe the BI engineer skills of having a lot of SQL, maybe being able to do data visualization, build some pipelines, communicate the value that you're doing, try and solve some business problems. That's the thing that people are looking for. We're not necessarily looking for people who can build crazy models or um, know all the deep learning algorithms and other things like that. But deep learning is really cool and all, but um, just something to, to throw in there. That's it. Awesome. Thanks so much, Danny. Uh, let's go to uh, Gina's question. Hey, so thanks a lot. Um, we do have a lot of questions in the chat, so I'm willing to table this one. Um, but my question had to do with um, knowledge graphs. And I personally, I hear so much about knowledge graphs as the way to go and, uh, you know, how, excite, how exciting an area it is. And I honestly don't know that much about knowledge graphs. And I also don't know that much about, therefore, how they're applied. Um, in business. So, um, you know, maybe speed round. I, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know if that's possible for knowledge graphs, but that was my question. Uh, great question. I wish David Nickerbock was there. I feel like he'd be a, a good resource for that. Let's go to, uh, let's go to Vim for knowledge. Uh, let's kick off the discussion on knowledge graphs. Eric, do you think this would be something you might be able to jump in on as well? Uh, I'll, I'll wait until afterwards. If Vim leaves any knowledge left. <laughs> The knowledge graphs are, yeah, that's complicated. It's a big question because there's a lot of different use cases for it. You can embed domain knowledge in knowledge graphs and you can actually train deep, deep learning models, <clears throat> models with some basic domain knowledge. Using a knowledge graph, you can even start overlapping with a, a very basic causal graph because knowledge graphs can contain causal relationships where they can propose them. You can discover knowledge graphs in a number of different ways. There's a, you can go through text analytics and you can begin to mine text for causal relationships and build knowledge graphs through text. There's a ton of different applications. The hardest thing about every single one of them is when the knowledge graph gets too big, how do you validate it? And so that's the, you know, that's been kind of the stumbling point is that you've, you get to a point where it's so big that it's unmanageable and unverifiable on the edges. You know, you look at the main center that everybody's going to be using and there's enough use cases and enough people playing with it to, to validate. But then you get to the edges and weird stuff happens. And you get, you know, it, especially if you start relying on it for anything. And even something as simple as just document search, if you create a knowledge graph based on your HR document library, you can ask the knowledge graph some questions and get some real interesting responses about <laughs> some unintended uh, policies showing up just because there is a relationship between, you know, harassment and whatever healthcare question you were asking somehow, all of a sudden you're getting recommended for harassment training. So there's, yeah, it's got a lot of positives, but it's really complex and there's just a lot that can go wrong when it gets big. Thank you so much. Anybody else have any thoughts or insights on knowledge graphs? 
if if I may, I've not had opportunity to to use them other than in code. But Ben, I wanted to ask you a question about them, and maybe this will help Gina. It seems like they could be automated on the output side or manually derived on the input side. I've even come across people seeking my help when they were cleverly using them as inputs for deep learning networks. But is all that accurate? You're asking me, Tom? Or are you asking oh, Ben? Ben always sounds like Ben. Yeah, it does. I know. Yeah. I'm always uh, guessing. <laughs> let me say Ben from Reno. There we go. Well, Ben's from Reno too. This is confusing. Ben, I feel like I've hurt your feelings, but it, it, trust me, it was unintentional. <laughs> I'm not qualified to answer that question about the graph stuff, so I will default to Vin. Yeah, you can use them to train deep learning models. It's uh, it's one of the ways that, and uh, the biotech field has been using this pretty regularly to train deep learning models with a type of domain expertise. And it's, you know, when I say that, it sounds a whole lot smarter than it really is, but the the knowledge graph itself creates a really crude ontology for domain knowledge, or at least embedding some domain knowledge into the deep learning model. And it doesn't have to learn as much because it's not relearning all the basics and you can actually improve the ontology or improve the knowledge graph and make the deep learning model train a little bit faster. So there's... Yeah, you can definitely do some things with a knowledge graph and use it to train deep learning models. But it's, again, it's really hard to build any sort of ontology and validate any sort of ontology. And you can do it in an automated fashion, but at some point you have to figure out how to say what's accurate and what isn't. And the less data you have around a particular part of the knowledge graph, the more uncertain it gets. Ben, thank you so much. Uh, Gina? Uh, hopefully that that helps. Uh, and and the I need some. I I think some self study uh, along these lines will will help. I did listen to um, Ken G's podcast with Ben um, from back in September, and you guys touched on that uh, somewhat, and a lot of other great topics too. So thank you very much, uh, guys, for those thoughts. Shout out to Ken Stavers podcast recently across the 5,000 subscriber mark on YouTube and 200,000 downloads. God damn, that's insane, man. Good job, Ken G. Uh, shout out to Kyle on in the building. Kyle and I used to work at our price industries. Kyle took my prototypes and made them into a reality uh, and helped drive business value. Kyle, we're going to get to your question after we get to Marcella's question, so sit tight, man. Uh, but it is good to see you again. Um, by the way, dude, Kyle's like one of the smartest like kids that, that I know. He's freaking amazing. Um, you guys should all connect with Kyle. Uh, all right, so Marcelo's question coming in is uh, coming in from LinkedIn. With AutoML evolving, do you think the future of this career will be centered in the ingestion, data engineering, and or deployment, machine learning engineering, or AutoML will never completely replace the function? Uh, I was hoping Ben would be here because um, I would love to get Ben's perspective on that. Um, Mark, go for it. Yeah, so <clears throat> uh, regarding the the auto ML, I was recently reviewing a vendor and as we just had like a pitch with them um, just to kind of see what's about like a potential use cases for it. 
And one thing that really popped out to me that I didn't consider until I went through kind of like the sales pitch was that when you do auto ML, the ML um, component is generated by the vendor and stored by the vendor. And so it creates like this potential bottleneck or this potential um, reliance on a vendor where your IP is tied to them. And so say for instance, like the vendor got sold to someone else or you have to go um, switch services or for some reason, that's gonna be a huge pain making that switch. Um, and I know you can export kind of like the hyperparameters and all those things. So there are ways around it, but that was an edge case that I considered when I'm, I'm still trying to learn about like, is there a way to kind of get around this where if you want to like leverage auto ML, but we're not stuck with them if you want to do more kind of complicated things. So not necessarily a, a, a full answer, but something that really popped up recently that was very top of mind. Mark, thank you so much. Let's go to Makiko. I think as long as you have broke startups, you're not going to have full adoption of auto ML. I know that's like super salty, but um, like, so, so, okay. So auto ML, right? Uh, <laughs> so these things that we talk about, like feature generation, uh, model training, model testing, <laughs> observability, deployment, retraining, um, the closest thing we've gotten to that are like, uh, like Comet ML, maybe Neptune, Google's Vertex AI, maybe AWS's SageMaker. And you still need so much there just to make things work, right? So even like, I think the part that is surprising to me, but it's kind of like hopeful in a way is that even in conversations with like senior and like prince staff and pr principal like ML engineers, data scientists, data engineers, software engineers, there's not really this sense of like, <laughs> all our work is gonna get automated out because a lot of these decisions are really hard. So like, even if you were to literally like do push button, um, like let's say we have a push button to deploy like a recommendation system versus like a forecasting system. Um, and let's say there's like certain latency requirements on like the front end, like it has, one has to be real time. The other one is batch. Like even kind of humans disagree on what is the right, like which, what, what design pattern do you use? So, so, so where I see kind of things like being helped, right? So for example, like a lot of times AutoML is literally like try a bunch of different model architectures and try a bunch of different like tuning parameters and pick the one that works. Like, I think that's kind of the state where it's at right now. That's obviously like super helpful. Um, you know, but like, you still have to somehow like input, for example, if you want to like make sure that your model's not biased, you still have to determine what those segments are. Right. And there's still going to be like data regulation and like management requirements. And also goes back to the whole, like system designs, like super hard. Like it is, it is really hard. Even like senior staffs, like they struggle with this. So I just don't. I see like certain parts of low hanging fruit being automated, but even then like that knowledge of how things work, like one or two layers down, that still has to be with a human because the minute something breaks and like you need like support to go on it or you have to troubleshoot, um, you know, like we're still helping engineers like literally troubleshoot their GitHub issues. 
and that's and like GitHub is is one of the things that like literally every single like engineer and analyst can kind of agree on, hypothetically. So if we then start going into the more abstract areas like model training, deploying like a container versus serverless versus whatever, yeah, it's a hot mess. I feel good about job prospects for myself, like you know, in the next 40, 50 years, at least as long as I'm on this planet, assuming it doesn't get nuked by a bunch of competing superpowers. But all said and done. I think it's still going to be like a good career, you know, yeah. good career there. Nikito, thank you so much. Point of clarification, though, uh, Comet ML is not a AutoML platform. Comet is an experiment management platform. So essentially just helping you manage and keep track of your deep learning uh, experiments. Also, uh, the new product we just launched is model production monitoring. Um, so that helps you essentially monitor drift, concept drift, data drift, and things like that. Uh, I still am an employee of Comet for the next uh, week. Um, so shout out to Comet. Um, even though I'm leaving Comet, doesn't mean that uh, our relationship there is uh, is finished. You'll still see me uh, supporting them in various forms. Uh, shout out to Comet. You guys should try it if you are doing deep learning. Uh, let's go to Eric, then Tom, then Danny, and then we'll go to Kyle's question. Uh, Eric, yeah, yep. go for it something small. I'm going to take a little bit of a different tact and assume this person is maybe asking about auto ML um, because they're wondering if they should, you know, learn to code or if data scientists need to code or if it's all just going to be automated. Somebody asked about that on LinkedIn recently, and I kind of had a thought about it that I'd never really considered before. And that was, you know, we get all like all in a huff about this with data science, but nobody's ever like, you know, does a, is it, does a doctor need to know how to do surgery? Like nobody cares. Like some doctors know how to do surgery. Some doctors don't know how to do surgery and there's going to be a need for both types of doctors or whatever. Right. Same thing with, you know, if you, if you need to, if you know how to code or if you can use these ML auto ML tools, or if you know, Alteryx or, or whatever, like kind of to Nikiko's point about like, as long as there are um, underfunded startups or whatever, there will always be a need for a wide range of skills. And so if you are way into auto ML and, or you have the opportunity to pick up the skills, like awesome. If not, then that's okay. Cause there's a company out there that's going to need your level of skill and just keep working at it. And then you like can find that right match. Yeah, I've been seeing uh, this week as well. A lot of debate. I mean, it's, maybe it's just my feed popping up. But I've seen quite a few posts talking about uh, auto ML. Um, yeah. Just learn to code. It's just a good skill to have. Uh, let's go to Tom. And then I think Russell wanted to uh, have some input as well. So maybe Tom, Russell, then Danny, and then Kyle's question. Uh, so we'll do that order. Tom, Russell, Danny, then we'll go to Kyle's question. So um, I think this is a cool question. One thought. I think most of the people here that can code could create their own auto ML platform given enough time. That That's my confidence in the level of people that are here. Second, we've seen something like this in the past where managers thought, oh, great, we have these finite element analysis packages now. I don't have to hire an expensive mechanical engineer to do this analysis anymore. Well, guess what? They found out just because you had a fancier tool didn't mean you didn't need to have a really smart person running it. So throwing auto ML in the hands of a non-data scientist, I think that could be a recipe for disaster. But wait, there's more. There's so much work in the pipeline 
that requires a lot of careful, thoughtful coding. But most of all, and this is what completely gets me, Greg and I love to give this talk on return on data, Greg Kakuyo and I, and it's with this spirit. If Why do we have such an emphasis on how many machine learning models get into production when 80% of the work and insights can come from that 80% you do before you get to the predictive modeling. For example, if you're doing your job and you're really looking at multiple models and you're always looking at linear and logistic regression, now you, and you've done good feature scaling and reduction, you've got a good Pareto of feature importance. Well, to me, that's more actionable data to your greater organization than what you predicted because they can go act on the knowledge of that feature importance, Pareto. So I, I applaud what Makiko was saying. Yeah, I, and by the way, I love Dennis Rothman, but he's really into transformers and he thinks they're gonna take over all of data science. And I'm just like, I love transformers too, but I don't agree with you there because there's still so much grunt work to just find out from the data what features are most important to the business Let's act on those instead of just chasing after predictions. Let's do prescriptive analytics. Okay, I'm off the soapbox. Awesome. Uh, let's go to uh, let's go to Danny, then Russell, then we'll go to Kyle's question, then Ken G has a question. Um, so that will be the order of operations. Uh, so Russ, or Danny, Russell, then Kyle's question. All good. I think you swapped the order around between me and Russ, but I'm happy to go first. <laughs> yeah. So it's all good. All good. All good. So if it, I think AutoML has a place, um, definitely, Finn, in terms of like, it's there for a reason. It's when you know exactly what sort of data set and what sort of problem you're trying to solve, and you just need a really damn good model to be generated by that process, and you want it to be regulated or especially if you want to share it with regulators as well. That's another point that just flew into my head. Um, but a lot of times when we're trying to like identify the problem and work with business stakeholders to actually figure out what the heck they want to predict anyway and what sort of actions they want to drive off the model, um, the intricacies of building up like a, a really good, good target variable is very challenging. And then over time, that target variable will change and you need to monitor it. And then out the back of it, once you have a really good model, then you have to think about, okay, how am I going to use it? Will I, do I run an experiment? Do I try and embed it into some system so it starts um, serving recommendations to people? How do I know whether my model is performing well in production? Um, there are all these sorts of factors around the whole machine learning process, which is definitely not covered by AutoML. And I think that's where we can kind of lean in with the expertise of we know how to build models and we know how to use data and analyze data and analyze models and all of that good stuff to actually drive better outcomes using this new technology. So I think AutoML has a place, but there's still people and processes and strategy around what gets done around all the ML. Thank you so much, Danny. Uh, let's go to uh, Russell, and then we'll go to Kyle's question. Thanks, Aubrey. Um, so coincidentally, I posted something today on LinkedIn uh, that was about no code, low code, uh, or pro code. 
I'm also didn't explicitly reference AutoML. I think that's distinctly one of the parts that I was um, trying to get to with the post. So firstly, it was a two two-way post. So the the one direction was um, not everybody needs to code. It seems like data science and coding is the zeitgeist, is the dirigeur thing, and everybody wants to go towards it. And I think that's kind of a mistake. We shouldn't be pushing everyone towards that. You know. Yes, it's great, go towards that, but we're also going to need people that can do jobs that don't require coding. So that was one very basic thing. Uh, and the other way that's more in, in line with what we're saying about AutoML here is that uh, AutoML is great, but as Danny was saying and, and other people here, you need to understand the code that's beneath it. If there's something that goes wrong with it, you need to be able to trace the issue. So I likened it in an analogy to, say, electronic calculators uh, being used back in the day uh, and um, mathematics skills dropping as a result because the, the school syllabuses were uh, allowing the pupils to use calculators to do their arithmetic and they their ability to do mental arithmetic dropped. So if you took the calculators away from them, they were kind of lost. And I think it's, it's the same here. If you have uh, anybody, you train them to use AutoML and they don't have a grounding, in the code and something goes wrong, they're going to be lost. Or say the, the tool crashes or you take it away from them or it moves somewhere else to another company as a data science that doesn't use AutoML and they need to create the, the models from scratch, then they'll be lost. So really great tools, but you need to have the grounding and the methodology and the practices to be able to create them yourself, to be able to use them um, effectively and stably. Awesome. Russell, thank you so much. Uh, let's go to Kyle's question. Kyle Ann, my former colleague at Price, uh, the, the guy who took uh, my ideas and helped productionize them. Uh, good to see you again, man. It's been a while. Hey, man. Yeah, yeah. good to see you. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Kyle. Yeah, by the way, your model is, uh, I've, I've, ex I've improved it so that we have more explanatory model. People can now feed in more input as they want dynamically, and they can see the profit margin based on suggested multiplier, which is interesting, right? Hey man, that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> yep. So um, my question is this: uh, I have a strong software engineering background, um, and I'm currently currently working as a data architect in two organizations, Price Industries and Slalom. Um, as I learn more about statistics and data science, I'm, I'm studying actually. I'm about to finish my master's degree in statistics at UBC. Um, I feel like that data science is essentially. Um, that data science, data science that most of the companies actually do is essentially 80 to 90% software engineering plus 10 to 20% of some taste of, let's say, statistics or data science knowledge. Um, so I, my question is, do you guys agree that the machine learning engineers or machine learning field will be eventually converging to software engineering, and I see a lot of observations, especially in FANG companies that senior and senior software engineers are able to pick up the machine learning fundamentals and they switch to machine learning engineers. And I see that a lot, probably uh, I see around me, I, I even, even myself, I'm in the same route. Um, so I wanted to see uh, what, what everyone's thoughts are around that. Great question. Uh, let's, go to, let's go to Vin, uh, so sorry, let's go to Makiko then, then Vin on that um, and then if anybody else has some input here, just go ahead, raise your hand. I'll be sure to uh, add to the queue. I kind of, I used to think that it would, but I 
now I think this idea of convergence is almost imposing a false dichotomy um, in that, like, so I've worked as a data analyst, I've worked as a data scientist, went to ML engineering, then now went to ML ops. So living a lot in the software DevOps side. Um, and I feel so much better about my life. Um, you know, so I think, so I think at the end of the day, I think you're still gonna have personas of work that people like doing and are attracted to. Um, I, like if you toss me a data storytelling analysis, experimentation design thing, um, and someone was like, here's $10,000 to do it. I would be like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Um, you know, I'll, I'll pass that high value opportunity to someone else on this call, to other people on this call who are much better at it because I dislike it so much uh, that I am willing to take that, that 10 K, you know, like project, give that, give that money to someone else. Um, and if they were like, oh, here's 2k to do like an engineering POC, or you're probably gonna have to work overtime. I'd be like, yeah, <laughs> I'm a sucker. Let me do that. Um, because I just genuinely like the work better, but I think, uh, in a lot of companies, like you do need that explore. So there's a couple things that I, so a couple things I see missing from companies that do just treat it as an engineering exercise. Uh, one, when stuff goes wrong with their data, like there's changes in their data distribution drift, they have no idea why. The second thing that goes wrong is when they're actually trying to deploy models for testing, even if it's like shadow testing or like a full on multi-arm bandit thing, um, if they don't have any like fundamentals and statistics, like uh, they might, for example, and we've had this happen, um, in a healthcare setting, they might not get the appropriate sample sizes to actually run those tests because the reality is most companies are not at Google scale. Like it's not like they can run the test for one day and get like statistical significance, like within an hour. Um, especially in like, in like manufacturing, like health tech, um, and other areas. So I think you lose a lot there. Um, I think also too, that like the benefits that I see a lot of the amazing data scientists I work with that like, that like I don't have, um, is they, they are willing to kind of go explore and they're willing to generate lots of ideas and like, they love reading research papers and all that. I also love learning, but my learning style is just way different. Like for me, it's how do I optimize? How do I create the least worst architecture <laughs> is what they say, right? As a, as a system design. Um, and I'm willing to kind of help them out with like the more engineering stuff, but you know, some people, I think they, they, gravitate towards that. And for me as an engineer, I'm like, I can respect the value of that exploratory work, that statistical sort of deep knowledge, that appreciation for experimental design. I can appreciate it and also not want to do it. <laughs> and the best part is like in a lot of companies, they also appreciate that distinction. Some people would argue that's not a good one, but I think a lot of companies, they will continue to invest in that as long as universities are like pumping out PhDs. Um, or better yet, even for cutting edge research, like robotics, computer vision, all that, um, you can't always think scale. Sometimes you literally have to do something manual in that area to even get a product that is worth like productizing. 
So that's I think, my. I think maybe maybe I should uh, frame my question in a, another way. I I don't I agree that data scientists will never go away. We need statisticians. We need someone to make the decision. We need someone to make the call. My question is whether ML engineers who are in between data scientists, let's say statistics, statistician and software engineering will eventually convert to software engineering and the data scientists will be serving more pure statistical and data science role and not be required to understand system designs and software engineering and software engineers and will be and machine learning and ML engineers will be, you know, basically boom, converged. That was my question. I, I, I never thought that statisticians, they existed for hundreds of years. Data scientists will exist for hundred years. Um, but what about the ML engineers who are currently booming in the current decade, right? Um, that was my question. A lot of people are, are interested in ML engineers and that's a big buzzword, but uh, what's, what's the future of ML engineers? Is it convergence to software engineers or are they, will they be a distinct field going forward as well? Let's go to, uh, uh, let's go to, to, to Vin, then Danny, then Kenji, and then, um, and then after Ken, we'll see if there's any other input. If there's no other input, then we'll go straight to Ken's question. Uh, let's go to, we'll go Vin, Danny, then Ken. So I, I think what we're, we're all missing, and it's kind of funny that we're all in data science, but we're all missing sort of the fact that data science isn't software development. And so what ML engineers do right now is going to evolve. We're going to start having, because when you think about software development, the valuable thing that you create is the code. And the code is what does most of the functionality. And it does, you know, so the platform itself doesn't get any better until the code gets better. But models use data. And that's a completely different paradigm. It's not the code. And so when you talk about an ML engineer, it's less about what they code and more about how they architect for that new paradigm. Because that's totally different. I mean, think about it. The platform gets better as you feed it better data. It's not about code anymore. Your model becomes more functional as you feed it more data, better data. And so an ML engineer is not focused on code. I know they write code and they have to be super technical and they have to have a strong understanding of architecture. But you have to realize that what an ML engineer is going to be doing over the next probably 10 years is more focused on improving models, not using code and architecting increasingly less code reliance into the platform and creating essentially a model that handles all of the functionality. And it improves as data improves, it improves as the architecture improves as you come up with potentially novel architectures. But you don't have to write a whole lot of code to get any of that to happen. And the platform is really the thing that software developers are gonna be focused on is building the platform so that anybody who's paying money, you know, uses the platform to get access to the model or to get access to the data. And so the platform itself kind of becomes irrelevant. It's almost like coding is one of those things you want to commoditize because it's not adding as much value. It's just a bunch of APIs. So that's, you know, and that's where you want to think about machine learning engineers is what we do with them now is not what we'll do with them over the next 10 years. And thank you so much. I uh, will go Danny and then to uh, Kenji. I also think that the whole MLNG and software engineering, like it kind of grew out of a need of having more robust systems for machine learning, essentially. 
um, before we had any of these larger platforms and frameworks, we would just kind of code everything ourselves. So it would be like end to end, pretty poorly written code, depending on your, on your software engineering skills. Um, but it would work right. And it would bring value to businesses. So then business essentially went, okay, let's get this like really good. So things won't break anymore. Um, but over time, as Vin was saying, I think the, the focus will probably shift to something different over time. It might be like building scale, scale systems, which scale even further, or maybe more robust systems, which don't need as much maintenance or different things like that. Um, I think the, some of the ML engine that we're seeing now is how to hook in with the data engineering teams to do like fully automated machine learning, like fully, fully automated, like building target variables, making the drift calculations and making it all work within the database environment. So that stuff is something which could work down the end, but it's like no longer machine learning engineering. And it's like a mixture of data science, machine learning, data engineering all put together. Um, I also think that I've worked with a lot of software engineers who wanted to transition into ML engineering because it's like the hot new thing. Um, and they're really proficient at it, but there's still like a fundamental gap, which is missing of like the machine learning knowledge. It's not necessarily like math and stats or anything like that, but it's like, how do you build a good model um, using data? How do you use it to solve problems? How do you know if something's gone wrong? I think that's the gap for all of the software engineers, like pure software engineers and designers or system design folks who want to move into that space. Um, but it's surprisingly not difficult to learn that stuff. You just need to build a model and try it. And then over time, just figure out what's, what went wrong. So yeah, I think it might not converge, converge in the end, but there'll definitely be like more and more overlap over time. Yeah, I think, I mean, that the convergence to me, like just, just, just thinking about it out loud, it sounds like the convergence is in like ML ops, right? So the ML ops side of things, I feel like is kind of where that, that convergence is happening. So maybe not a full on convergence, but there's a little bit of a, a stopgap, I guess for lack of a better word, but Ken, let's hear from you. Yeah, really quickly. I'm not sure if I even really agree that there's gonna be aggressive convergence. I mean, if you look at the larger trend of positions in the domain, I mean, like what, like seven, eight years ago, you pretty much only heard about data scientists, right? And then the field was broken down and fragmented more. You have data engineers, you have data analysts, you have ML uh, machine learning engineers, you have all these different more specialized positions. And I think the trend in the industry is generally go, going towards more specialization. So you're gonna, I would expect that we'll see uh, like ML engineers having more tools that are specifically relevant to them and less relevant for the average software engineer as well. So in my mind, like, I think that there's a probability it goes any direction. There's no way I can predict the future, but my bet is looking at like the larger trend and saying, hey, we're seeing more specialization. There's probably gonna be a better definition of what a machine learning engineer is in five years than what we have now. Uh, very much like how some of these other roles have been hopefully better defined over time. Um, so, Again, that, that would be how I would go about thinking about that problem. Um, and that, as someone in your situation, as, as a student looking to, to advance your career, that's something you might also want to pay attention to is like, what would I want to specialize in if I wanted to specialize among these positions? Uh, like, which one gives me the most flexibility or which one, if I go down that path, can I have the greatest return on 
going forward. Kyle, what do you think? Any follow-up questions there? Um, do you do any follow-up add-ons or anything? I think uh, I, I, I was always uh, curious of this question. You know, I think I even asked this question to you, Harpit, a couple of years ago, but uh, I think the answer that I'm hearing is most of people agree on that it's going to be, if not more, if not less, it's going to be only um, more specialized. And that's what I also thought as well. But uh, a lot of a lot of folks or uh, a lot of people around me who are who are software engineering background who moved into ML engineers surprisingly realized that what ML engineers do are um, are most of ML engineers, not the most advanced, let's say PhD level of data science, are pretty easy to pick up and learn. And that's why they were to, well, that last Friday we were you know having a beer night and they were thinking of oh maybe it'll be it'll be converged into software engineering eventually and and I think I agree with you guys it's going to be even more specialized if not uh, yep thanks for thanks for all the valuable thoughts. Um, Kyle, thanks so much for uh, sitting by. We're going to have to connect uh, offline now. I want to hear what you've uh, how you've built on top of that model that we had. Um, I'm yeah. excited to, to, to <laughs> for sure. Right on. Uh, so let's go to Ken. Ken's question. Ken had a question. Uh, good question here. Uh, so I'm excited to to get to that. Yeah, I mean this one's I think pretty interesting. It's it's more of a uh, like a, a a brainstorm type of thing than it than it would be a question. But I mean with what's going on you know, globally with Ukraine and Russia right now, I'm interested in how data science or data scientists uniquely could provide value. Um, to, to everything that's going on there. So something that I, I've been very interested in this whole conflict for a while, I read this book called Sandworm that talks about like the state-sponsored hacking uh, that, that Russia has been doing and essentially like crushing the Ukraine and testing uh, cyber weapons on them since around 2014. And there seems to be a very clear application of, of what people can do in the in the cyber uh, and, and in the hacking communities around how to help the situation there. Uh, we also saw an incredible outreach of help during the COVID pandemic from data scientists and aggregating data and making it more tangible um, and, and like useful to people. And so my thought is, I mean, obviously this is very different than the COVID scenario, but how can data be leveraged to help improve the quality of information? How can, um, data be leveraged or data science will be leveraged to like help save people's lives in some sense. I think that that's a kind of important and, and interesting question to, to bring up in, in a discussion setting. Great, great question. Uh, Ken, I'd, I'd love to hear from, uh, from Pokemon to, to get the, the brainstorm going. Ben, what do you think? Um, I'd, I've got some like a NDA type thing here, so I can't really, I know that sounds like a strange answer, but I can't really, I can't really answer. And I'm really sorry. It sounds horrible. I, I wish I had something to contribute. Yeah. Um, anybody else, man? Like I said, it's a good question. Like I, I wish I had some ideas here, but Kiko, let's go, let's go to Kiko. Uh, and then uh, Mark, then anybody else, if you guys want to jump in, just go ahead and raise your, raise your hand. So there were two interesting trends that were going on. Uh, one was crypto donations, the both sides of the conflict. I'll let Mark talk more about that one. Uh, the one I will sort of bring up is documenting war crimes. 
So digital forensics and the deep fakes that have been starting to circulate. Um, and that is really important, especially because, um, I don't know if people saw this, but I think over at The Hague, um, they had, it was the ICJ. So normally they're responsible for prosecuting crimes like uh, Bosnia, Rwanda, you name it. Um, normally those kinds of cases land up there. And I think there was a, I wanna go back and see this, but essentially there are 50 members on um, 15 members on the court. Um, it was, I think 13 versus two or something like that with Russia and China basically uh, voting against uh, sort of, you know, one of those statements that they make as if things will be better. Um, and it's kind of important because in a lot of times, a lot of these war crimes, uh, they do indirectly get documented either through like GPS locations or through photos or things that are shared on social media. Um, but a lot of times, and I think this is actually one of the issues that Facebook has had, um, honestly, because they've had some instances of human rights abuses and all that. They're not always able to catch it. Or um, if there is like videos or things like that that get passed around, a lot of times it's using old footage that's that's been restitched uh, for propaganda. So I think that's kind of an important sort of area that like data science can help. Um, one of them is like being able to discern if a video is in fact a deep fake. Um, you know, another part is documenting potential like forensic crimes that happen um, and doing some crawlers in that. Um, and also providing like better document, uh, better speech translation. Because the thing is like, there's a lot of different perspectives and narratives going on. Even, you know, within our household, we have a lot of debates about this because, uh, you know, some people uh, in India, they have a, a slightly different perspective, you know, on Russia's behavior and actions. Um, some people, family members, yeah, like it, it, it's just very geospecific, right? So I think that's an important area. It's unfortunate because frankly, it's a little bit after the fact, but I do think that when there is this whole narrative of going on that like, for example, a theater that's been bombed, um, filled with families, you know, um, I think that kind of veracity of information becomes super important. So sad, but it, you know, it's, it's needed. Mark, this is for you. Yeah, so <clears throat> thanks for bringing up this this question, Ken, because I think this has been a lot, a lot of people's minds too. Is like, how can, how can you help considering this like huge humanitarian crisis? I think one thing that I've kind of struggled with uh, with this is that when I became a data scientist, one thing I said to myself that I would never do is that I'll never use data to like that can be used to kill people. I refuse to do any defense type of work. I've even had clients where like they'll they'll say like hey we're proud to be veterans um and i'll double check with them I'm like yo that's cool are you are you doing defense or are any of your clients defense because if it is I just, I just can't do it right um so that's been a challenge because a lot of the um a lot of like the crowdsourcing there's like a mix between humanitarian aid like red cross and like getting supplies and like getting bullets <laughs> um and be able to trace like where it's going to where. And that's been something I've been uh, really struggling with. Going back to like what you can do within that vein. Um, and I think Makiko really already highlighted this, but I'll tie it back into kind of like the web three blockchain thing is uh, data mining. 
there is so much information out there where there's like propaganda or Twitter or like where things are moving. Um, and I think something that's been highlighted in this kind of crisis and this war is the role of cryptocurrency for funding things. Um, and there's, there's two kind of arguments, right? So um, there's one supporting Ukraine and like quickly deploying money to them without having to worry about bank tra transfers and all the, that type of thing. But also for the Russian people who are kind of innocent in this where their, their country and their leadership is like completely um, going all in on this. And some of them aren't even aware. Again, I, I may be falling for propaganda myself, so I need to double check that. But, I was, you know, hearing soldiers not aware, you know, the feathers doing a training mission and didn't know they're actually going into war. Um, so there's these things called bank runs where everyone's going to, to the bank to pull out money and therefore there's no money in the bank. Um, and so that's one of like the big draws of cryptocurrency is that you don't have to worry about bank runs. Um, and so if you're just a citizen who's like protesting against the war, now you're impacted because of these sanctions and whatnot that are kind of outside of your control. And so blockchain has this interesting dynamic in cryptocurrency where one, you can subvert these sanctions, <laughs> either you're innocent kind of bystanders stuck with your government or the government itself. But on the other side, you're able to deploy kind of transactions. Um, and so I think something I saw, I forgot, I think it was like someone from MasterCard, they raised like million, like $10 million through NFTs in like 30 minutes and was able to send it directly to, um, to Ukraine like NGOs. And what's really interesting about that is, you know, if you, if you donate to an NGO, like just through like your credit card or something like that, like you have no idea how it's used or where it goes. Um, with cryptocurrency and the blockchain, every transaction is saved for the public to view. You can go on etherscan.io and view those, uh, those kind of send and to from kind of thing. So there was one project where they did a Twitter thread, like, hey, we raised $5 million. This is how it's deployed. Here are the contract IDs. You can look it up for yourself. We sent this much here, this much here, and we're setting up a, a wallet for this other NGO. You can check back in 10 weeks, right? So things you can do is like, if you're really, um, I do have some links, but if you go find them, um, is, you know, this is where I think like network analysis can become really interesting, especially we are talking about graphs earlier, um, is that you can trace kind of exactly where the money's funneling from and who's it going to. Um, the, there's this phrase kind of like the blockchain doesn't lie. Um, you know, everything's stored on there. Ben's raising his eyes. There's probably some ways to lie. We just don't know about that. Um, and, uh, you know, we can now validate kind of where my money is going. Is it actually going to the people that I expect it? But also you can, you can quantify how much of this cryptocurrency is actually sub subverting from, um, from these sanctions. That was a very long winded answer. Um, but just trying to give you a perspective, like, you know, what's happening with cryptocurrency and how data scientists can mine that data to actually fact check people. Mark, thank you so much. Uh, that's great too. I mean, that's a good question, Ken. I, I wish I, I wish I could think of some some idea that could that could help uh, with this. I mean, closest thing that is coming to my mind is, can we help match refugees to potential host families? Right, um, collecting just information on host families, collecting information on refugees, maybe finding you know recommended families for them to go to or you know maybe 
I don't know, recommended geographies based on the skills that they have. So they can move somewhere to, and just quickly get kind of up on their feet. Uh, yeah, not to share, but uh, let's hear from the people on this. Fun fact, there is a kid who did that. He put together a website um, to, to, to do that. He was also apparently the same kid who put together one of the most popular uh, COVID trackers. Oh. So for, for people who are like, what is, what is my perfect internship project? Honestly, sometimes it's just getting something out. Doesn't even have to be like the most amazing web app in the world. And it's like a very stripped down version of like Airbnb. Um, so he, he did do that. I mean, how about it's the call to like, you know, leaders out there, because, you know, at Comet, a lot of our engineering staff is Ukrainian. And I know that in tech, there's a lot of Ukrainian folks in tech. What can we do to help sponsor them, bring them over to either States or Canada? Um, I don't know, like opportunities, job opportunities for the people. Um, any other thoughts here, uh, Gina? I just posted a couple links um, in the chat, but obviously for people just listening to the podcast, um, there is a coalition of companies, Adobe, Arm, BBC, Intel, Microsoft, and Trupic form a coalition to develop end-to-end -end open standard for, tra for tracing the origin and evolution of digital content. And that caught my eye. That was actually February 22nd of last year. Um, and at, I had a long time ago worked on um, an anti-counterfeiting project when I worked at Hewlett Packard, um, specifically in the realm of pharmaceuticals, because at the time they had plants in Puerto Rico and they did uh, work with uh, pharmaceutical companies. And so it's just a fascinating area and it applies tracking and tracing it applies across practically any, any industry you can think of. I'm sure we're all aware now that counterfeits go way beyond just like electronic products or handbags or, you know, clothing labels. There's just, you can't believe the amount of stuff people counterfeit. And a lot of, you know, a lot of times it's in China or other places um, around the world, but this uh, new initiative, well, it's not so new now, it's a year old, but point being that um, that could be a way or an area to look into um, uh, Ken and anyone else who is interested in that. So um, I, I initially found this, I can't remember how I saw the initial announcement, but anyway, on Microsoft's uh, blogs, they, they talk about this. So uh, one could search and easily find it. Awesome, Gina, thank you so much. Um, I know there's a couple of the questions on LinkedIn coming through, but we'll go ahead. We'll have to table those for next week. So I hope you guys do come back next week and, and ask those questions. I promise to get to those uh, first and for, foremost on the on the show. The um, one of them was about quantum computing. I was hoping that uh, Mr. Kokia would be in the building uh, since he's our resident uh, quantum computing expert. But uh, Greg, we need you here next week for that. Um, and then this question about a good portfolio. We'll talk about that next week as well. Um, so yeah, hopefully next week I'll be at a co-working spot. I'll probably, uh, my, my house is proving to not be a good place to stream from because I keep getting blinded by the sun. Um, so yeah, we'll do it from a co-working spot next week. Uh, and then 
in April, we've got three co-hosts or, or guest takeovers. Uh, Ken G is going to be taking over. Uh, Sadie St. Lawrence will be taking over and the Kiko will be taking over as well. Um, hope I can get somebody else in there to help out as well. Um, yeah, man, you guys are, uh, you guys are awesome for being here. Thank you guys so much for, for taking time out of your schedule to join me. Uh, it's been good to be back. Felt good doing a full office hours. I think I haven't done one, uh, probably since early February. It's been like at least, at least a month since I've, uh, I've hosted. So it felt good to be back y'all. Um, wrapping up my last week at Comet, uh, next week, um, just getting some good content into the pipeline. Um, even though I won't be working there, I will still be having positive relations with them. You'll probably still see me uh, helping support them and whatnot. I'm excited to be headed over to Pachyderm, um, doing some awesome stuff with them. So keep an eye out for that. Be sure to tune into the episode that was released today with Joe Reese, the boss mayor of the Data Nerd Herd. It was a great episode, so be sure to check in and uh, and 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 tune in on that. Uh, Antti, thank you so much for hooking it up on 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 the uh, buy me a coffee. Uh, guys, remember, check the show notes if you're tuning in on the podcast. There's a link there that you can go and, and quote, unquote, buy me a coffee. I'm not actually buying coffees with that stuff. Uh, using it to get new equipment and uh, pay for some editing um, because, you know, haven't had some, haven't had sponsorships on the podcast for a while. Uh, so that being said, if, if you're a CEO or a CTO or a founder and you want to get some uh, exposure for your show. Reach out to me. We'll work out a sponsorship. Y'all, thank you so much for taking time. I just scheduled to be here today. Remember, my friends, you got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big?